So, um, a few days ago, very strange thing happened to me. I'm getting ready for bed. I'm in the bathroom. I use the bag. Go to the bathroom, and then I go to brush my teeth. And as I'm brushing my teeth, I'm going at it and, and and trying to get it all clean. All of a sudden, my toothbrush just plops right out of my hand and flies through the air, lands over towards the toilet. And the toilet seat is up, the lid is up, and it wasn't flushed yet. And in goes my toothbrush. And there I am standing with my mouth full of toothpaste, looking down at the toilet with my toothbrush at the bottom of the toilet. I'm going, really? <laughs> that happened? And I think about it and I, I, I realize, well, there were some consequences to my choice of not flushing the toilet, of not closing the lid. If I had done those things, then the, to the, the toothbrush would have just clanked on the toilet and I would have just, okay, wash it off later and, and, and you know, wash it off now and use it later. But uh, anyway, a little toothbrush catastrophe happened. But there were some consequences, though, that happened to my actions with that. And I'll remember next time, hold tightly to that toothbrush and uh, make sure that uh, everything's closed up and, and taken care of. But uh, David, we're going to find out, is, is uh, also, too, going to be someone who's uh, going to see that there's consequences to his actions, as we're going to read here in this chapter 12 of Second Samuel. And, uh, you know, as I look at the chapters 11 and chapter 12, I can't help but make some interesting observations. You look at chapter 11 that we did last week. Uh, we see maybe someone here, we're thinking, who is this guy that's supposed to be king? Who is this guy and what have you done with David? Because, I mean, from chapters before chapter 11, we see a man after God's heart. Now we see a man after David's own heart in chapter 11. You know, it's similar to uh, Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars becoming Darth Vader in The Revenge of the Sith. And that pop, pop culture reference was for all you Star Wars fans out there. You're welcome. Uh, but it's just, it, chapter 11 just really gets depressing. What is going on with David? What is happening? And then we turn to chapter 12, which we're going to look at here today. And we can look at that and go... And he's back. We have David back now. Uh, that, he had that wood, woodshed moment with God. And God took him aside and said, this is, you know, this is what you're doing. You need, you, need to, you need to take care of some things here. You need to allow me to take care of some things in your life. And so now then we see David back as a man after God's own heart once again. And uh, at the end of chapter 12, through some turmoil and everything else, we finally see that David gets back on track. And uh, kind of similar to Darth Vader being redeemed in Return of the Jedi, right? And again, you're welcome, Star Wars fans. But uh, there's some contrasting chapters in the life of David here. And I find it interesting that on this Memorial Day weekend, we find David at war with God. But what we're going to find out is that four three-letter words, You are the man. It led to three simple words of confession. I have sinned. And I believe the quicker we get to those three simple words of confession, the less pain we have to endure from sin's consequences. In the previous chapter, David sought desperately to hide what he had done. Then when David assumes his problem is safely behind him, Nathan appears with a message from God. And this chapter, in chapter 12, gives us a powerful example of God's severe mercy. So turn your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
And for those who are anticipating another guest reader, you will be sorely disappointed because I will be going through this chapter, actually, through the verses as we go through the message, as that message unfolds. So turn to Second chapter, Second Samuel chapter 12 and be ready to go. So as we continue our, our look at the, the life of David, uh, did you realize that there are 62 chapters of the Old Testament devoted to his life story? And there are more than 50 references to him in the New Testament, far more than any other biblical character, except, of course, Jesus. Nevertheless, this man, after God's own heart, committed a series of terrible sins that led to terrible consequences. And that's the thing about heroes in the Bible. They are never unrealistically portrayed. You get to meet them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all that wrapped together. And David was probably about 50 when, when uh, fifty years old when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, rather than immediately admitting it, he covered it up with premeditated murder, as we found out last Sunday. For close to a year, he lived a life of hypocrisy and deception. And then one day, God brought to David a man who forced him to face his sin and confess it. And 2 Samuel chapter 11, as you recall, ends with these words. It says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It was evil in his eyes. And let me give you all a news flash. What is evil in the eyes of the Lord thousands of years ago is still evil in the eyes of the Lord today. To break marriage vows with an adulterous relationship is still a willful sin, even though many people do it today. As we look at this chapter, though, it, it reveal God's severe mercy. If you have found yourself in a situation like David, I need to let you know right now that God's mercy is available to you. We just need to find those three simple words, I have sinned. But I want to share some observations here in this chapter 12 and uh, see how God's severe mercy plays out here in this. So first of all, first observation we see here in this chapter 12 is that God sees every sinful thing we do and eventually will make them known. God sees all the things we do, the good and the bad, and eventually those sinful things will be made known. David may have hid his sin from other people, but the Lord saw what he did. God knew that David had to face up to what he had done. So God set into motion events designed to bring David to his knees. God certainly knows how to do that. And uh, each one of us, he knows exactly what we need in order for that to come about. We need to realize that God doesn't settle his accounts at the end of each month or at the end of each year, like a utility bill or an annual tax that's going on. But God does settle them. As Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 reminds us, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Another pastor preaching on 2 Samuel 12 described it as a living example of the law of the harvest. I like that terminology because he's referring to a man reaps what he sows. 
But God sees every sinful thing we do and eventually will make them known, as we see here in chapter 12. Another observation about this uh, portion of Scripture. Feelings of guilt are God's way of warning us to confess our sin. Feelings of guilt are God's way of warning us to confess our sin. Try to imagine what life must have been like for David between the time he sinned and the time when he, when the old prophet Nathan confronted him. Do you think life was enjoyable for David? Do you think he had long, wonderful nights with his new wife, free from any feelings of guilt? I think not, because look at Psalm 32. It gives us the answers to those questions. Psalm 32, the first four verses, written by David himself. He says, Blessed is he whose transgressions, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Life was not pleasant for David while he tried to live with the guilt of his sin. we moved Anthony from Turner, Oregon, on up to Lacey, Washington, on Wednesday, this last Wednesday. We helped Maddie also to get her car from Anthony's place down there in Turner, back home here. And her car, you know, as some of you know, was stolen and then recovered with some minimal damage and some theft that happened to it, one being the catalytic converter. But I rode with Maddie on up I-5 from Salem, basically Salem, on up to our house. And, uh, you know, there was along the way, through the noisy and stinky (laughs) ride up there because the exhaust was coming through and all that, her check engine light was on. And so all the way up I-5, we noticed that and we thought, well, yeah, it doesn't have a catalytic converter. Of course, the engine's going to kind of freak out a bit. So we knew the reason. So we didn't pay much attention to it, the check engine light. We got our car back home without any issues, though. But more often than not, that check engine light means something that it should be it should be attended to. We should pay attention to that check engine light in our car. You know, and guilt operates much like that warning light on a car. If you're driving along and the light flashes saying service engine soon, you have a choice. <laughs> you can stop the car, open the hood and see what's wrong, or you can ignore it and keep on driving. No one will know the difference until you're, you burn the engine up. And at that point, we realize what a stupid decision it was to not, pay, not to pay attention to the light on the dashboard. You know, some Christians are like that. When the light of guilt begins to flash in their lives, they choose to ignore it and keep on going. Then somewhere down the road of life, their lives fall apart, and they realize What a foolish decision it was to not stop and confess their sins. You know, and that's what David was trying to do here. He was trying to ignore his conscience, but it wasn't working. After the adultery and murder, David was struggling. Psalm 32 indicates he was experiencing sleepless nights. Everywhere he turned, he was reminded of it. And David was tormented by his guilt. And during this time, I I suspect he was a miserable husband, an irritable father, and a poor leader. He had no joy. He was a guilty man, and the guilt was there constantly. Feelings of guilt are God's way of warning us 
to confess our sin. Another observation from this portion of Scripture is if we refuse to confess our sin, God will send someone to force us to do it. God will send someone to force us to do it. Look again at verse 1. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan didn't come on his own initiative. The prophet was sent by God. And think about the timing. When, when did God send Nathan? It wasn't right after the act of adultery. It wasn't right after Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant. It wasn't right after David murdered Uriah. It wasn't right after David married Uriah's pregnant widow. It wasn't even right after the birth of the baby. God waited until just the right time. And maybe there are times when you question God's timing. Nevertheless, we come to realize that God is always on time. God not only does the right thing, He does it at the right time. And God not only chooses the right time, He chooses the right person. And here God chose Nathan. So why did He choose Nathan? Why him? You need to remember that Nathan was a man who had earned David's respect over the years. Nathan was there helping David through the idea of building a temple for God. And David knew Nathan very well. He trusted him. So now, try to put yourself in Nathan's place. Can you imagine what he was thinking and feeling when God told him to go talk to David? I would think that he wasn't too thrilled with this assignment. But nevertheless, Nathan immediately obeyed God's command. And notice here how David, or excuse me, Nathan confronts David. He uses a little parable much like Jesus would do later in forcing people to face their sins. And with this story approach, David's interest was drawn in and caught off guard at the same time. Look with me here in uh, the first four verses. It says there was, was, well, not first four. Anyway, uh, look at those verses here where the parable starts. He says, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had, had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in, in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So after that story, how does David react to Nathan's, uh, Nathan's story that was told there? Uh, look in those verses there, 5 and 6. It says, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall, shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is furious. And that opened the door for the old prophet. And he said, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Those four three-letter words did the trick. And Nathan was telling him, You're the one who took Bathsheba, another man's wife. You're the one who had her husband murdered. You're the one who has lived like a hypocrite. You're the man, David. What a perfect story. Can you see it? Look at the characters. You got a rich man 
That's David. You got a poor man. That's Uriah. You have a, a little uh, young lamb, a ewe. Uh, that's Bathsheba. You have a, a flock of the rich man. That's David's harem or wives and concubine. Then you have the traveler. And you think, what? who is the traveler? That's David's desire. And so David wanted to feed his desire by sacrificing for that lamb, that you. Very interesting. And through that little story, David saw the awfulness of his sin. David had selfishly exploited Bathsheba and stole her from Uriah. He planned the death of Uriah and deliberately involved Joab in his crime. And for any one of these offenses, David deserved to die. That was clearly stated in the Mosaic Law. Then before David could interrupt, look what happens next. Nathan goes on. He says, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. At uh, in there, verse 12. Now can you imagine how devastating these words must have been? In his sin, David had despised the God who had loved and blessed him. And now as a result, for years to come, David was going to, to experience all kinds of grief. And if you take time to, to look at the life of David more fully, you'll see that turmoil. You'll see the tragedy and heartache that unfolds that will come upon him and his family. It's like a big old train wreck. If we refuse to confess our sin, God will send someone to force us to do it. Another observation we find here in this portion of Scripture is that when we are forced to face up to our sin, true repentance is required. Try to picture David sitting there after he heard Nathan's words. And the Bible doesn't say it, but maybe David dropped to his knees uh, with tears running from his eyes and in a shameful voice saying, I have sinned against the Lord. If only David had spoken those words sooner, way back before chapter, right at the beginning of chapter 11, some of the devastating consequences could have been avoided. But notice what happens after David confesses. That last part of uh, verse 13. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And with that confession, the restoration began. You see, the quicker we get to those three simple words of confession, I have sinned, the less pain we have to endure from sin's consequences. And when we are forced to face up to our sin, True repentance is required. So what does that true repentance look like? 
Let's look at David's example. It's there that we see what true repentance looks like. True repentance begins with an open confession. When a person holds back the truth or tells you only part of it, he or she isn't repentant, still holding on, still grasping on. True repentance requires a commitment to make a complete break from sin. True repentance is a turning around. It's, it's going in the opposite direction from sin, making a complete break with what has been. It's a new life. You don't go back to the old thing anymore. True repentance causes the spirit to be broken and humble. Psalm 51, which we visited, we visited before in previous messages, verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And also then with true repentance, the person claims God's forgiveness and reinstatement. All sins are forgivable when they are confessed and forsaken. But some sins carry tremendous consequences. And when we repent, God promises forgiveness and restoration through the blood of Jesus. We need to realize that. You confess your sins and you give them over to God, they, then you are cleansed from that. Don't let those things come back at you. Don't let Satan bring those back to you. God has forgiven them. Let them go. Move on. You've got a new chapter in your life to, to write. But, you know, God does not promise relief from all consequences. Forgiveness is given, definitely. But as far as consequences go, those can linger. And which brings me to my last observation. Sin can leave some painful consequences. The pain David and his family uh, were, were about to experience was the direct result of David's sin. And Nathan named the consequences that David would endure. Those consequences can be summarized by Nathan's statement, The sword will never depart from your house. But you might ask, why are there consequences if God has, has forgiven David? We need to understand that there is a difference between the forgiveness of sins and the removal of earthly consequences for sin. God will forgive me for getting drunk if I repent, but I may still have consequences for a DUI. If I choose to drive my car way over the speed limit and I repent, ask God for forgiveness, God will forgive me, but a police officer may still give me a ticket. Earthly consequences that happen because of our actions. See, our consequences of sin sometimes serve as an example for those who are not Christians. If you look at the story here with uh, David, there are some consequences of his sin that are serving to speak to those around David and uh, the people of Israel. In verse 15 it says, Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. The child that was born, out of chapter 11. And so we have this horrid consequence going on. And David's actions caused God to be disrespected by Israel's enemies. And God had to demonstrate his displeasure by taking the life of the child born to the king and Bathsheba. And when Nathan left, the child was struck with a sickness. And the word for struck is almost always used of divine judgment. 
God forgave David for his sin, but God took the life of David's child. And you might say, why would that happen? Was God punishing David in spite of, of, of forgiveness? You know, some people think forgiveness means God, God promises not to punish us for our sins. But God was not punishing David by taking the baby's life. Certainly the death of his child broke David's heart, but God was doing something else. This is the important truth to grasp when thinking about continuing consequences of forgiven sin. They are never punishment, though at times they may be quite unpleasant and cause complications and cause pain or sorrow. But those are just side effects. They are consequences that flow from something else. In David's case, by taking the life of the child, God was showing the pagan tribes that had been laughing about David's sin, knowing that he is the holy God who does not condone sin, even in his rulers. So God had to do something. Remember what Nathan said to David in verse 13. Uh, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan came back to him and said, The Lord also has put away your sin. Clearly, clearly God had forgiven David. Because he said, You shall not die. So punishment of David as the law of Moses required was withheld. God didn't do it. God's severe mercy was at hand right there. But God also said in verse 14, he said, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. You know, there are other consequences that followed as well, as we saw in verses 10 and 11, where the sword would never depart from his house, uh, all these things going on. Uh, adversity is going to be raised up in his own household. The wives that he had will be taken from him by, by his neighbor. And uh, all this going on. All this turmoil. Again, the consequences that God set in motion were not designed as punishment for David. In verse 12, you did it in secret, but I do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. God was not going back on his promise of forgiveness. By these additional consequences, he was warning everyone that even the king cannot sin without consequences. He was using David's sin as a stern warning to all Israel. Now, hoping that God might allow the child to live, David then goes and he prays for mercy. I would call his prayer kind of a garden variety prayer in that because it resembled very closely the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. That garden prayer in Matthew 26, verse 39, where he says, Please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what David was praying earnestly, that, that God would save this child. And even when his chief advisors tried to console him and urge him to take food, David wouldn't. And then seven days later, the child died. But the servants hesitated to tell the king for fear he would, he would harm himself. While they whispered, David saw them and reasoned that the child had died. And after asking them about the matter, the death was verified. And the other thing we need to remember here is then what David did next. When consequences come, grace comes with them. Look what David did here in verse 20. He says, So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Now at this point... At this point, we might expect David to, to, to fall to pieces in grief. The child has died. Instead, David showed remarkable calmness. At first, he got up, he washed himself, 
and he used fragrant oils on his body. Then he changed into some fresh clothes and he went to the house of God to worship. And that word worship, it means here to prostrate oneself in submission. He was symbolically yielding to God's will. Finally, he returned home where he asked for food and sat down to eat. Look at the reaction of David's servants in verse 21. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate ate food. Such a response did not make sense to them. But David's answer to his people in verses 22 and 23 is a great picture of handling life's problems. It says here, And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David explained that he had fasted and wept for the sick child. And when the child died, there was nothing more that could be done. This may sound kind of callous to some of you dealing with grief in your life right now. But sometimes, you know, truth is a little brighter than we can immediately tolerate. But it is still truth. See, David was basically saying, you can't change the past. Life has to go on. So trust God for the future. And that's what he did. The only explanation for David's composure at this troublesome time was that he was experiencing God's severe mercy. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. Now often when we forgive, we hold grudges. When God forgives... The incident is over. He continues to love, and he continues to care for us. The tears of David and Bathsheba were turned to joy as God blessed them with a son whom they named Solomon, a name in Hebrew that means peaceable. And God had a special love for that child. And for the second time in this chapter, Nathan was sent to the the palace there, and this time he brought words of encouragement. God had given Solomon a second name, Jedidiah. And that name, Jedidiah, means beloved of the Lord. This name declared that the sin of, his, of this couple was in the past and the future looked bright. The Lord further encouraged David by a decisive victory over the Ammonites. A war at Rabbah had continued for a year or more, and this lingering problem might have been God's way of seeking to humble David. But after David's confession of sin, miraculously, Joab, the commander of the army, was able to inflict some devastating blows, and the victory was close at hand. Look with me in verses 26 through 28. Now Joab fought against Rabbah, the people of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Joab called for David to bring in the troops and lead the final battle in case he, Joab, should take the city and it be called after his name. 
Joab's humility is incredibly remarkable for a man in his position right there. In verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Now, in accordance with Joab's wishes, David assembled his men and came to Rabbah. In verse 30 then, then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So victory came quickly, and with David taking a great amount of treasure, including the king's crown of gold and precious jewels. You know how much that weighed? It weighed around about 92 pounds. Imagine that crown on your head. Can you say neck pain? <laughs> in verse 31, then it says, And he brought out the people who were in it, and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Wow. Looks like we are back to pre-chapter 11 condition for David. David's back. And all because those four three-letter words, You are the man, led to three simple words of confession, I have sinned, which brought about God's severe mercy in David's life. And from this 12th chapter, we learn three important, well, yeah, three important lessons. And take notice of one urgent plea. Three lessons, one urgent plea. First, it is easier to point a finger than to admit our failures. It's as easier to point a finger than admit our failures. And for nearly a year, David lived his own, his own guilt, unwilling to humble himself and confess it. But when he, he saw a similar transgression through Nathan's little story, he was quick to condemn, pointing his finger at that rich man. Well, you got to realize, too, remember, when we point a finger at someone, usually there are three fingers pointing right back to us. Make the tough choice to admit your own failures. Another lesson we can learn from this portion of Scripture, failure, failure is not the end, it is the beginning. Failure is not the end, it's the beginning. The exposure of sin did not destroy David. Instead, it motivated him to renew his relationship with God. It began a new chapter in his life. That's the good news. Failure is not the end, but the beginning for you too. If you know you're living with unconfessed sin, give it up. Come to Jesus and let him begin a new chapter in your life. Enter into those three words, simple words, I have sinned. And let God cleanse you. Confess to him. Give those sins over to him. A third lesson we can learn from this is where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That's God's severe mercy. You see, David could have easily thought that God had given up on him. A murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a deceiver, a hypocrite, all those things, all together. And he could think that God would give up on him and that his blessing would be removed from him. Yet God graciously withheld his hand of judgment on David. He placed his blessing on a succeeding child and provided victory over David's enemies. Wow. Remember that God's grace is greater than all our sin. It brings us to my 
one urgent plea. Those four three-letter words, you are, the, you are the man, it led to three simple words of confession, I have sinned. You see, the quicker we get to those three simple words of confession, the less pain we have to endure from sin's consequences. Please, please, find your way quickly to God's severe mercy by getting to those three simple words, I have sinned. Confess to Jesus today and save a boatload of trouble for your tomorrows. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be with each one here right now. And Lord, if you're speaking to hearts right now that have that unconfessed sin, pray, Lord, that right now in their quietness that they would just humbly give that over to you and say those words, I have sinned. And Lord, I pray that as those people pray that prayer, Lord, that you'd come in as they confess their sins to you, that you'd forgive, you'd bring assurance in their life that they are forgiven. And Lord, I pray that they would walk uh, away from that life, away from all that's going on, into your light, into your truth, into your ways. Lord, help each one of us to follow after you closely. And Lord, I thank you for your message today to us. And help us remember that you are always there, ready to forgive. So I pray, Lord, that we would come to you in our need. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to our hearts today. Thank you, Lord, for working in lives today. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to be glorified in our lives. Lord, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.